0: The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew five thirty eight through 42. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, Well, good morning. My name is Justin. And I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be back with you this morning. I got, I got about a month ago or so, three and a half weeks. I got COVID, and so I've been away from you for a while. And I'm glad to be back. <clears throat> um, today is, we've already said it a couple times, the second Sunday of Advent. If you're not familiar with, you're like, what is this word Advent? Why do people keep saying this word Advent? I think I'd made it until I was like 30 years old before I heard the word Advent, okay? So if you don't know what it means, it comes from a Latin word called ad, or Adventus, a Latin word Adventus, which means arrival. And Advent is the season leading up to Christmas where we celebrate the two Advents or the two arrivals of Jesus. We look back at his first arrival to the earth roughly 2020 years ago, and we look forward to his second arrival when he'll set up his eternal kingdom and make all things new. And that's why when we sing the song, um, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, it's got such maybe foreign language to us. We're saying, come and ransom captive Israel. You're like, didn't he already do that? Well, yeah, he did do that in the book of Exodus, but he's also going to do that at the end time that we are Israel, we are the people of God, the church right now, and we're still waiting for Jesus to come back and ransom us and to make all things new. So there's four weeks to Advent. Each week we pause and we celebrate an aspect of Jesus's kingdom that he brought to earth in his ministry and he's gonna ultimately bring back in fulfillment in his second coming. Traditionally, those things, those themes are hope, last week, peace, this week, and joy and love. And so this week, we're just meditating on the fact that Jesus is our Prince of Peace. And it just so happens that we're studying one of Jesus' most confusing and misinterpreted statements, kind of on peace, that he's ever uttered. Many have interpreted Jesus' words here as a call to what many call a uh, call to pacifism, the belief that any violence, including war, is unjustifiable under any circumstance. Now, in the late 19th century, Leo Tolstoy, the great Russian novelist best known for war and peace and Anna Karina, experienced a profound moral crisis, followed by what he regarded as an equally profound spiritually awakening. Now, he was he had this moral crisis, the spiritual crisis, that you could say a metaphysical crisis. He had all kind of stuff going on and, and so what does he do? This, in his words, he got alone with his heart and the mysterious book. And this is the mysterious book he's talking about. And this is what he says. He says he read and reread and reread over and over and over again Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. And then this is his word, in his words, quote, I suddenly understood what I had not formerly understood and what the whole church for 1800 years had misunderstood. Okay, let me tell you, that is exactly how most heresy and cults begin, okay? The whole church for the last 1800 years has not understood what Jesus has taught, but you know what, me and my heart, we got it figured out. I sat down with my heart in the book and I got divine revelation, right? This is usually how you... Now, I'm not going to go there, but in a, in a weird place, okay? Let me just say that. So Tolstoy thinks he's understood something that no one else in the history of the church has. Now listen, he read these words that we're studying of Jesus. Where he read these words today. Do not resist the one who is evil. And he commits a great error in interpretation. He isolates these scriptures from the rest of scripture and interprets them as if they were the only thing Jesus or the Bible had to say about it. So if you pull these verses out of the rest of scripture and you just analyze them like they're all that Jesus said, that will easily lead you to the place where Tolstoy was. And that is to interpret them as a prohibition against all physical violence, both to persons and institutions. Now this caused him to become a fervent, this is what he calls himself, a Christian anarchist and pacifist. Now, what? Anarchism is a political philosophy and movement that is skeptical of authority and rejects all involuntary coercive forms of hierarchy. Anarchism calls for the abolition of the state, which it holds to be undesirable, unnecessary and harmful. Here's what Tolstoy said, quote, it is impossible at one and the same time to confess Christ as God, the basis of whose teaching is non-resistance to him that is evil, and consciously and calmly to work for the establishment of property, law courts, government, and military forces. Again, Christ totally forbids the human institution of any law court because law courts resist evil and even return evil for evil. He says this, the same principle applies to the police and the army. When Christ's commands are at last obeyed, all men will be brothers and everyone will be at peace with each other. Then the kingdom of God will come. So Tolstoy took these verses out of the context of scripture and isolated them all alone at the expense of the rest of scripture, and then when someone asked the obvious question, what would happen if the state or the government stopped punishing wrongdoers and evil people? This is what he said, quote, the so-called criminals and robbers, so-called criminals, I feel like this is like, this could be on CNN right now. The so-called criminals and robbers love good and hate evil as I do. And when they come to see through the truth Christians teach and exhibit that the nonviolent devote their lives to serving others, no man will be found so senseless as to deprive of food or to kill those who serve serve him. So here's the problem. Tolstoy took these scriptures out of the context and forgot at least two main thrusts, main concepts in the scriptures. Number one, He forgot that the scriptures teach that that the, the, the doctrine of original sin or the depravity of man, that we're born sinners and so we sin, okay? What Tolstoy believed, he was a man of his day, he was a man of the enlightenment, he believed people were born naturally good. And most forms of socialism, Marxism, pacifism, a lot of these, these things, they start at the basis, mankind is good, and so what has made man bad? Social systems, hierarchies, governments, family systems, all of those things are what make man bad. So that's why we wanna get rid of them all, so the individual can be his perfect self. Well, there's a big problem with that, right? We say the nature of man, right? The nature of humankind, we are born in sin. Now, secondly, he didn't know that, or he didn't know or didn't understand or didn't hold it together or forgot it. I don't know know why he didn't see, but he didn't see it. He didn't see the teaching that scripture has on the role of the civil magistrate or the governing authorities. And the book of Romans tells us in a really simple way that the government or the civil magistrate is meant to punish evil, and promote the good of society. Now, I've been studying kind of political philosophy quite a bit. I've been studying the scriptures to find out, um, to kind of put these things together and coalesce these views and see what's going on. And one of the things I've noticed is how almost every single political philosophy takes one aspect of the kingdom of God and isolates it Or idolatry, or or, I, I man, words, words, they're hard sometimes, idolizes it, okay? Idolizes it, takes one aspect of the kingdom of God and totalizes it, puts it above everything else. It's no mistake that idolatry and ideology sound so much alike. See, socialism makes an idol out of the state. Capitalism, makes an idol out of the market Marxism makes an idol out of the social class a person is in. libertarianism makes an idol out of the individual now when you study the scriptures you realize that all of these this is why they're so confusing when we're in a, in a world where in America, in America and, and the democracy that we're a part of, there's these people, people that hold these political views all over the place. And when you hear them, you're like, some of that sounds right, but some of it sounds really wrong. The reason that if you have a Christian worldview, the reason why some of it might sound right and some of it might sound really wrong is because all of these isms all of these political ideology, ideologies have at least a kernel of biblical truth in them, right? We are members of a social class, and we are influenced by the, the social system that we're, we grow up in, our families, what economic class, maybe, maybe even the color, of our, uh, the color of our skin can affect that. that they are, they do influence us. Right? So there is a kernel of truth in these. The problem is when you elevate them or you idolize it and you say, this is the only problem or this always happens and you forget about the rest of biblical teaching. Okay? <clears throat> That's why one of the most important principles for interpreting scripture is to understand the biblical and theological context for the scripture you're reading or studying. You ask yourself when you're reading a scripture, how does this scripture fit in with the rest of scripture or the the story of scripture? If you don't ask that question and do that work to see how it fits with the rest of scripture, it's going to be very easy for you to misinterpret the Bible in many places. And our text today is a great example of that. So if you've got your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 5, verse 38 through 42. I'm going to read it for us. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now, let me just say right away that if you are just sitting down with your Bible and a cup of coffee for your quiet time in the morning and you read these verses, if you only take them at face value, they are going to cause you all kinds of practical trouble. Do not resist the one who is evil. Hey, son, who's at the door? I don't know, dad. He's got a mask and a gun. Oh, let him in. Come on in, buddy. Do not resist a violent attack against your person. Are Christian dads supposed to teach their sons if they're being picked on and bullied at school? Just take it on the chin, son. Turn the other cheek. Better not come home with one black eye. Come home with two. Someone wants your shirt, give them your coat too, right? He's in the locker room, somebody steals his shirt, here, take my shoes, bud, take my shoes. Someone forces you to do something, do it twice as much as they asked you to do. Every time you see a beggar on the side of the road, give them money. Every time they ask you to round up for charity, you round up. Now if you just take these words at face value, it would only be a matter of hours before you would be naked, broke, and most likely evil yourself. For if you're not resisting an evil person and they ask you to do something evil, you would then be be committing evil yourself. So just what is going on here? Is Jesus just talking nonsense? Hopefully we know by now, no, he's not talking nonsense because he's the smartest man that's ever lived. Just what is Jesus teaching? Well, for us to understand, we have to put his words in their biblical context. We can't assume we already know what's going on here. Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. How many have ever heard that phrase before? an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It's nothing new. That is called the lex talionis. It means the law of retaliation. It was first instituted kind of in its seminal form um, when Noah got off the ark and he's basically said, if anyone kills a man, I'm gonna require his blood from him. And then it's reiterated at least three other times in the Old Testament in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And all of, what is it? It's a principle of justice that God laid down when Noah and his family got off the ark and it's repeated several times. And each case, it's part of a longer list of kind of a list of equivalents. So Jesus is kind of paraphrasing it here. So I want to go back uh, to Exodus to see what it actually says in Exodus 21, 23 and 24 says this. But if there is harm, I'm going to read 22 just so you can get this. When men strive together, this is kind of weird, but when men strive together, when they fight and they hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, the one who hit her Shall surely be fined. Look, as the wo- woman's husband shall impose on him, and listen, and he shall pay as the judges determine. I want you to hear the context. Judicial system. Okay? Now keep reading. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. Burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. Okay, here is the principles that we need to see here. In a just society, the punishment for wrongdoing will be proportionate to the crime committed, okay? This doesn't have to be interpreted like super literalistically, like cutting people's hands off and stuff, right? In fact, in Jesus' day, it's just meant to show if you steal something worth a nickel, you should pay something worth a nickel back to him, right? You shouldn't steal something worth a nickel and be killed for it. There should be a, your, whatever your crime is, there should be a proportionate penalty that's commensurate with your crime, okay? But here's, all, here's the key. This is a legal principle. He's speaking to the judges and the judicial system It's meant to be administered by judges. It is not a personal principle for a person to take matters in their own hands, right? In fact, this is hard for us to see. hard for us to, when we read this, we read it in a personal context. We think he's talking to us personally. But we have to see, in the scriptures, there's different spheres where the judicial system works a little differently. So let me take it it like this. The family is a sphere, okay? Our kids naturally live by this principle, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, don't they? She slapped me, so what did I do? I slapped her. She took my candy, so I took her. And what do we as parents tell our kids to do? We're not saying there's no punishment. We're saying this, if she slapped you, come and tell dad, let dad take care of it, right? I'm the the judge, I'm the judicial authority in my house. Extrapolate that out. In your school, we've got judges. In your society, we've got judges, right? the, The principle builds out from there. What was happening is the Pharisees and the Sadducees were using this judicial principle to judge their personal relationships. They tried to use it to justify personal revenge. Even though the law of God explicitly forbade it, it said you shall not take vengeance or bear any grudge against the sons of your own people. So what was happening is this principle of of judicial retribution was being utilized as an excuse for the very thing it was instituted to abolish, namely personal revenge. Now, understanding this helps us to see what Jesus is trying to get across to his disciples and by extension to us. The scribes and Pharisees had become their own judges and juries. If you hurt me, I'm going to hurt you. Now, that kind of attitude in your personal relationships leads to anarchy and a never ending cycle of violence that you see in many Islamic countries, and also think think like Hatfields and McCoys, right? Tit for tat, everything. If you did this to me, I'm gonna do that to you. So that's what Jesus is speaking out against here. Verse, let's go back to our text. Verse 39. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, Again, there's spheres of authority here. Jesus is talking about our personal relationships. He's not, ta- He's not saying that the government should not resist anyone who's evil, okay? He's not speaking to government, police, soldiers, law courts. He's not even speaking against the legal possession of a firearm by an individual citizen that has a right to carry that firearm as an extension of the government to protect human life from evil, He's speaking about individual relationships. When you individually, in your relationships, encounter someone who's, who's doing something personally against you, don't resist them. And then, he qualifies that statement with four very specific examples. It's Not a totalizing, never do it. He gives four specific examples that we have to study. Because again, Jesus is speaking against personal animosity and revenge. He's saying Christians do not take matters into their own hands in order to exact revenge or save themselves from some sort of suffering. Now, let's look at all four examples that Jesus gives us because I'm going to tell you right away, he is not teaching that Christians are doormats and just allow anybody to take advantage of them. He, that, it goes against other things he said, like we should be as wise as serpent, serpents and as innocent as doves. Okay? Okay. So let's go and let's look at each example, one by one. Uh, Second half of verse 39. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Okay, here we go. Let me just say something right away. This scripture is not about letting someone beat you up. It's really not about violence at all. It's about shame and honor. Now, what, what does that mean? Okay, this is hard for us to understand. The culture of Jesus' day, like many Middle Eastern and Eastern countries today, was what is called an honor culture. What does that mean? In an honor culture, the most important thing to a person was their honor and their family's honor, and the most dreaded thing was shame, okay? I got COVID about a month ago, we've been at home, we've been, you know, we do a lot of family movie nights. One of the nights this last week or two, two weeks ago, we watched the new Mulan, okay? I'm not a critique of Mulan, I don't know, I never saw the cartoon versions, my kids didn't like it, okay? Whatever whatever artistic, you know, turns they took, they didn't like it. But, when you're watching Mulan or any movie like that, you you recognize their culture is, some, is very different from ours. Why? They had a, it was an honor and shame culture. And so what do you hear in those movies? You hear, do not bring shame upon the family, right? Family first. Now, that, that's bizarre to us because we, we do not live in a family-centered or honor and shame culture. We live in an individualistic culture, So in an honor and shame, the individual desires are secondary to that of the family. I don't really care what you want to do, you're going to follow in your father's footsteps. I don't really what you want to do, you're not going to follow your individual impulses, you're going to bring honor to the family, family first. We live in an individualistic society that says, forget family, forget social systems, forget honor, do what makes you feel good. And so we will go to the college we want to go to. We'll live in the city we want to live. We throw off all ties. We don't feel pressure. We don't feel too much pressure from our families because we're about being individuals. Well, we can't read this text today with that individualistic lens, with our cultural assumptions. We have to get ourselves back in Jesus' day and go, okay, this was an honor and shame culture. Now, why does that help us interpret this text? Because he's literally talking about so if you, if you get hit on the right cheek, most people are right-handed, okay? What does that mean is someone just backhanded you, okay? We have another term of cultural shame that's using something something with a word and then slap. I don't know. Uh, I can't really repeat it here from the stage. But, but that's what he's getting at. It's not the pain. It's the shame, Okay? It's the shame. I've just disrespected you. I've, I've just dissed you in front of everybody. I've done something that has brought shame and dishonor to you. That's what is going on in this context, okay? It was meant to literally bring shame upon them. And listen, this, this is interesting. It was against the law to do it. And in that, in that day, they had different levels. So if two brothers, if a brother... Um, dissed his brother and backhanded him, he might have to pay, I'm just going to use our term, he might have to pay five bucks. It was a small fine. But if you uh, were a, a lower class and you backhanded someone of a higher class, they could cut your ear off. Why would they cut your ear off? To bring shame to you. Because it would make you look weird, right? Walking around your whole life with your ear cut off and everyone would know that guy's a shameful person. It was about shame and honor. It wasn't about physical violence, okay? So Jesus, this is what Jesus is saying. For the Christian, it is better for them to suffer shame, take the insult, even give them the opportunity to slap your other cheek and dishonor you double, than to seek revenge or revenge your name, bring, you know, try to save your honor. That's what he's teaching. Okay, now let's go to verse 40. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Okay, again, this seems arbitrary to us. This seems dangerous. One, in our culture today, we didn't live in a very litigious society that just right? Like you can walk into a grocery store and slip and fall and then you're going to sue them and take everything they've got. And so we're looking at why would Jesus say, if somebody's going to sue you, give them more than they, you owe them. Well, because in Jesus's day, let me put this, let me, let me set this scenario. Let's say I'm a farmer and I don't have the money or the capital to go out and buy my seed. So I would go to somebody that has seed and I would give the only thing that I've got, which is my tunic. And my tunic is basically my collateral, right? It's my collateral. When I take this seed and I go plant the seed and I get a harvest, I will bring my proceeds, my money back and I will pay off this debt. Okay. Well, what, what often happened is we know this, the weather doesn't cooperate. Something happens, something bad happens. I don't get the harvest that I expected. I now am in debt to this person and I can't pay off my debt. And so What's going to happen? That guy is going to sue me. Do you see that? That guy's going to sue me. And Jesus here is speaking in regards to a legal dispute where the disciple was clearly in the wrong. And what does Jesus say? Pay your debt and go above and beyond. Why? Because this guy has been, it's kind of like he needs interest or it's even pain and suffering. This guy has been out all season long, right? You borrowed from him and you've used his money and you didn't pay him back and now he's had to hire a lawyer and he's had to bring a legal pursuit, or a legal, you know, bring it before the judges and so now you need to pay him for his time or you need to go on above and beyond here. That's what, that's, what there, that's what Jesus is teaching. Okay, 41, again, 41's not easy to understand either. Look at verse 41. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You're reading this and you're like, who is forcing people to go miles? What is this? This doesn't make sense to me. Well, in Jesus' day, it did make sense. This is a direct reference to Roman soldiers' right to have a member of the subjugated population carry their gear for them. So the Jewish people were subjugated by the Romans. They were conquered by the Romans. But the Romans allowed the Jews to practice their religion and do their things. But here's the problem. If a Roman soldier needed to get from point A to point B and he had his tent and he had his gear and he had all of his stuff, he had the legal right to tell a Jew, carry my stuff one mile. He had the legal right to do it. It might sound a little bizarre, is there any modern, modern equivalent? The only modern equivalent I, I could think of was imagine, now I don't know if this really happens, but it does in the movies, so here it is. Imagine a police officer needs to commandeer your vehicle, right? It happens all the time in the movies, right? He's on a police chase and you don't, okay, I'm not gonna ask questions, just take my truck, go ahead, and do it, right? Something along those lines. Now, this, when a Roman soldier would do this to a Jew, it made them very angry. Right, it was an oppressive practice that they resented, but it was a Roman legal provision, and they had no choice about complying up to the limit, which was a mile. And what does Jesus say to the Christian here under this oppressive regime, under this oppressive government um, practice that was that was unjust? What does Jesus say? Don't just go one mile; go two. Go and b- above and beyond the expected service. And then lastly, verse 42. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Now that's pretty straightforward, but it does need to be said, Jesus is not requiring Christians to give foolishly. Matthew chapter seven, verse six, he's gonna specific, he specifically says, don't throw your pearls before swine. That means do not give foolishly. Later on in 2 Thessalonians 3.10, Scripture says if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. Okay, so it's not promoting laziness either. Jesus is saying a principle, Christians by principle are self-sacrificial and generous. We don't just think of our own needs. We look and we try to provide those who are in need around us as well. All right, now, that's a lot, of, that was a lot of cultural work I had to do there. Let me summarize it really quick for us. Disciples of Jesus have the same rights as any other citizen of a state or a country does. We have the right to personal property. We have a right to be protected by our government. We have a right to protect our family from harm. We have a right to a fair and just trial in matters of legal dispute. And we have a right not to be exploited by our government or state. We do have those rights. But here's what Jesus is saying. Christians also have the freedom to lay down those rights in some circumstances. Let me ask you maybe an obvious question. Why would we ever want to give up our rights? Why would we ever let an evil person shame us and not retaliate? You don't, you don't see this in our culture, because our culture, if you, sh- if you throw shade on somebody in our culture, you better expect shade's coming back. Why would we pay a creditor more than we owe him? Why would we give an enemy more than they asked for? Why would we give our resources to a beggar? Well, there really is only one answer. Because that is what Jesus did for us. Jesus had all the rights of the universe. He was the son of God and yet he gave up those rights to come to this earth to save us from the just consequences of our sin. Jesus literally gave up his right to a nice and easy life in heaven to save us from our sins by dying on the cross in our place. Think about that. Jesus was worthy of all the honor of the universe, but instead he suffered the shame of the cross for us. Jesus paid the debt that we owe to God for our many sins and that debt didn't just cost his tunic or his coat. It cost his very life. And Jesus did all of that so spiritual beggars like us could receive resources from him that we don't have and we could never gain any other way. Now, what does that mean? I want to go to Ephesians chapter 1 here. If you've got your Bible, turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 3 through 10 as I close. <clears throat> Why would Christians give up rights in this world? Why would we allow somebody to take something from us? Why would we freely give up our resources? Why wouldn't we just stand up and declare every right that we have? Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritually spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. All right. Here's what he says, right away. Praise God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Most of us go, what does that mean? Yay, I'm blessed in the heavenly places. I am spiritual blessings. What is that? He's gonna tell us exactly what that is. Keep reading. Even as he chose us In him in Christ before the foundation of the world your spiritual blessing begins here before the foundation of the world in what's the doctrine of election that God chose you before you were a thought in your mother's brain before the world was created God said he named your name he wrote it in his book and he chose you for eternal life keep reading that we should be holy and blameless before him. This is something interesting. That election, that salvation, has made you into something different. He has made you holy, he has made you blameless. You do not become holy or become blameless, blameless by obeying the law or being a good person. God's choosing of you has actually made you holy and made you blameless. His work did that all by itself. Now keep reading. In love, he predestined us in love. This work of calling you and choosing you before the foundation of the world was an expression of the powerful love of God. He predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. This isn't just how to get to heaven. This isn't just a salvation thing. You've been brought in by God's work alone into the family of God, and you have God as your father now, and you have brothers and sisters in the faith. Keep going. Through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It was his will, it was his choosing. It's not you choosing God, God chose you. The whole plan was according to his will which he has blessed us in the beloved, that we are loved by God. In Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. He bought us like slaves. He bought us back and he paid for us. We were slaves to sin and he bought us out of that slavery with his own blood. Through the, forg- or the forgiveness of our trespasses, He forgives every single one of our sins. Everything we did in the past, everything we're doing in the present, everything we're going to do in the future, he's already paid the price for it on his cross. According to the riches of his grace. How can Jesus do this? Because he's loaded with grace. We sin a lot, his bank account is way deeper, his pockets are deeper with grace. We can never out-sin the grace of God. It's all from the riches of his grace, which he, look, lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. This is all a mystery, but he's declared it to us. He's opened the book, the Bible. He's taught us all about it now. According to his purpose, look, which he set forth in Christ as a plan. Here's the plan. For the fullness of time. What does the fullness of time mean? That means when time is all up. When we step, when the mor- our mortal body puts on immortality. When time stops and eternity begins, this is what's gonna happen. As a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. This eternal plan that God put together before the foundations of the world, this election where he called you and he chose you before he built the universe, it's going to end, it's telos, it's goal. this is where it's going. Heaven comes down, You, earth comes up, everything gets completely remade and renewed and we get a new physical body and we get to walk on a physical world in a physical universe with God present there with us. We get to do that. We get to be that. We get to become that. We get to be a part of that. Now, this is what I want you to hear. From the foundations of the world to the foundations of the new heavens and earth, all of that depends upon God, not us. Not us. Not your effort, not your faith, not your power, not your strength, not your morality, not your wisdom. It all depends on the grace of God In Jesus Christ. And he secured it. He secured it from the foundations of the world. To put it simply, Christians are free to give up our rights because in the gospel, we have something that is greater than our personal rights. We have the riches of his grace. Now listen. This principle has to go with the other principles in Scripture. This principle has to be governed by wisdom and prudence. Right? Hey, right? Hey, honey, what's the water bill? Oh, it's 140. Give him 160 this month. Right? No. That's not what he's saying. But we should use wisdom and use prudence, and when we see somebody that is in need, We should talk to them. We should find out. Maybe the spirit will tell us to give, right? We should be generous, but we should use wisdom. We should use prudence. Now listen, every time a Christian sets their personal rights aside and gives grace to another person, God gets the glory because that person is living out of the gospel. We used to say a lot around here, live a life that demands a gospel explanation. Why did they give that? Why did they serve there? Why do they talk to that neighbor? Nobody in the neighborhood likes that neighbor. Why are they talking to that neighbor? Be a person who lives their life in such a way that people have to go, oh, because that guy believes in grace. That's why. That's why he's doing that. Now, I, as your pastor, I want us to be people like that. I want to send people like that out into the culture to be missionaries of grace, bringers of good news, bringers of grace out to our city so people can see little reflections of the gospel in their neighborhood and then go, there's something different about that. Something different there. I want, I want to know what it is. And we can say, it's Jesus. He's given me grace, and so I gave you grace. Let me pray. Father, I thank you for this text. As difficult it is to understand in our 21st century years, I thank you for giving us the tools to do it. I pray that it would minister to your people. For those here who maybe have never turned to Christ, they've never turned away from themselves and turned to Jesus, I pray that they would do it now. they put their faith in you. I pray that you would make them brand new. You would change them from the inside out. That you've called them and they're here and they heard the gospel and they would respond and put their faith in you. Father, for the Christians that are here, I thank you that you give us the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that reminds us every week just how much you gave up in order that we could have the riches of your grace. On the night that you were going to be betrayed, you took the bread in full knowledge of what was about to happen to you. You didn't protect yourself. You didn't guard yourself. You didn't isolate yourself in a room with armed guards. You went willingly to an unjust trial. And you took the bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body That's broken for you and you took the cup of wine and you said, this is the cup of the new covenant and it's my blood that's poured out for your sins and you ate it and you drank it and you told us to do it as often as we gather together to proclaim your death until you come back again. And then Jesus, you walked out of that room and you went to the cross and you died for us. So as Christians this morning, we come to your table Rem- remembering the cost to save us, remembering how much you've done for us. And we eat your bread and we drink the cup and we, so we are it in your body and we take it in your blood and we're asking you to make us into that type of people. Let our life reflect the gospel in our city like that. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.